Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. All right, everyone, welcome into the podcast. We're continuing through our study in the book of Revelation. And uh, right now we've been camping out in the uh, chapters two and three, which the are the what Rob calls the seven messages uh, to the Rob churches. Calls. Rob calls the seven messages. I'm not uh, the only one. Well, I was reading David De Silva today. He calls them the seven oracles. Oh, there you go. See? And, big, and big David word. De Silva definitely is the man, so. <laughs> he, he is, actually, uh, which maybe we'll get him on one day. We will get him on soon, so. Yeah oftentimes referred to as the seven letters. And we talked about how they're not merely letters, but these are prophetic messages uh, to the churches. And the central command is to repent. Uh, This this actually occurs uh, 12 times in the book of Revelation. We talked about how we use the big word chiasm, how you get these chiastic structures where something expands out and then comes back in and whatever's in that middle is, is going to be the thing that is going to be the, you know, kind of the focal point. And so the, the letter to Thyatira, it, intesti- it intensifies this command to repent, right? In chapters, right. Uh, chapter two, verse 20 to, to 23. So uh, we only kind of started on that. We actually didn't even get through all our notes, so we're not going to rush through it. So second episode and it's fine. We're on no time frame here, right? Yeah, so uh, yeah, yeah. are we just going to keep continuing on the, through, are we going to kind of glean through the, the letter or the messages kind of looking at uh, that theme of repentance today? What are we going to do? What we're trying to do is this. I've mentioned this before, you know, that Sunday afternoon is the loneliest time of the week for a pastor. Mm. You get home and you're like, dang it, I should have said this. Oh no, I said that. And they're going to think I meant this and I didn't mean that. And oh no, I, I got to go a whole week until I can clarify. Mm-hmm. That's not what I meant. And <laughs> I hope nobody takes it the wrong. You, know, you just do this to yourself. And even as a teacher, right? You probably don't because you're like yep. a great teacher, but no, like I just me. talk so fast. No one knows what I'm saying. Yeah, there you <laughs> um, and you wish, and you go, oh, I hope they come back next week. Yeah. Right. So that I yeah. can clarify what I, what I said wrong or what I didn't say, or, and I kind of felt that same way. And what I'm hoping to do in last episode, this episode, maybe a few more episodes, and we're going to hopefully get David DeSilva on in a few weeks to talk more is to try to paint the background and the context and the portrait of what was going on then, because I think we are so divorced today mm-hmm. in the modern Western world, especially with our affluence. Uh, we're so divorced today from that context that it's hard to take what's being said then and brought into our world now. So we have to really do a good job of digging deeply back into that, what it was like. And so here's what I want, you, want to encourage you with. If, if last week like bored you a little bit, got a little bit over your head, a little bit too deep, I want to encourage you to say, in order to understand this message in this text, we really have to dig deeply into this text and in the context, the Roman world, the cultural context, the religious context, to understand it well. And so I want to remind you, if you're listening here, that your job is to keep reading the text. And here's the thing. The book of Revelation is part of Scripture. It's part of the Bible. And the Bible is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And how blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night. And I believe, and I think you do as well, Vinny, that if you just simply read the scriptures, it will transform you Mm -hmm. and just make that a daily habit. And you're like, but I don't understand the book of Revelation. Guess what? The Lord's going to show you things and understand things just by reading it and just keep reading it and keep meditating upon it. And as you come up with things and maybe questions come up, send them our way and maybe we'll address Mm -hmm. them on the podcast also. But I want to encourage you just to be reminded that what we're trying to do is paint the background and the context so that you can understand the text better. And your job in the meantime is just to keep reading the text regularly. The next thing I want to remind you of, and that is that they are seven messages and oracles is fine. 
in the sense that they're prophetic messages from John the prophet to the churches. And here's the reality. We love the prophets. I mean, we do Bible studies on Isaiah, and he's like one of the favorite ones. And we like Daniel, although chapters 7 through 12 are kind of wacky, and we don't know what to do with those chapters. But the reality is no one likes prophets. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's, you don't actually like the prophets. If you think this is great, you don't. We love Jesus too, but then we realize what he was really saying, and we're like, well, I'm not really sure about this guy anymore. Mm-hmm. And that happened in, you know, John 6, they left him. And she's like, hey, to the disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter's like, well, to where, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. I think we need to understand the context better, understand the prophetic messages better, and prepare ourselves for this message, because it's the message of the New Testament, which is the message of the scriptures. Let's begin then, with all that being said, uh, in the book of Acts. And in Acts 19, there's a situation that's going on. It's a riot that ensues. And this riot is just like, it doesn't really seem to make sense to us. And so let's remind ourselves of this riot, this context here. If you want to read Vinny, Acts 19, mm-hmm. we'll do verses 25 through 29. And then grapple with what's going on in this riot as we proceed through our conversation tonight. All right. Acts 19, 25 to 29. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demaritus, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into de- uh, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she, she may even be disposed for her magnificence for she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocharis, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Okay. If the story goes on, you know, Paul wants to go, hey, I'll go in and I'll settle them down. Like, no, Paul, that's probably not a good idea. And it's like, okay, that's got to be an exaggeration. You know, what's going on? So the, the context is uh, Demetrius, a silversmith, now makes money, profits from building shrines and, and idols and things of that nature. And Paul's like, hey, look, you know, these gods don't actually exist. And there are no gods at all. And costing them business. But notice what Demetrius says. And the answer is, there's a date, verse 27, there's a danger that our trade will fall into disrepute. So this is going to cost you and I in the wallet, right? In the pocketbook. It's going to hurt us at the end of the day. How are we going to make a living? And remember when 90% of the empire is trying to make a living on a day by day basis, you know, and there's no knowledge of, of where Demetrius is on this ladder. He, he might be okay, but nonetheless probably lives day by day. And mm-hmm. Paul is bad for business, right? but notice also what he says. And the great, the temple of the great goddess Artemis, and Ar- and the temple of Artemis was one of the uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Greece. I mean, it was this massive shrine, and so it's this, it's civic pride, it's religious pride, and so now the economic issue, which is probably the bottom line motivator, right, is now wrapped up in an ideology, a religious ideology that says. Oh, and we have Artemis, the great goddess of our city, 
who is being dethroned of her magnificence. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so Paul's like, hey, I'll go in there and call him down. Like, no, Paul, not a good idea. And it was not a good idea. And so Paul, of course, was, was led out the city the other way and rushed out of the city. So here's a little bit of context. And so that gives us a grapple now. So what we need to talk about then is what's going on in the Roman world that would cause people to have this kind of religious, political, civic ideology there. So what we talked about last time was emperor worship a little bit and the imperial cult. I think Christians today would kind of look at this and go, well, emperor worship is just something silly and we would never do that. And there's no way that anything like the imperial cult would be something that would influence us at all. And I would respond by saying, well, I think the imperial cult is alive and well. It's just changed. It's taken on a different form. So we need to understand what's going on and what John's speaking against. By the way, Jesus was speaking against it as well. So what I'd like us to do as best as possible, really, is to see if we can step into the ancient world a little bit to understand what the first Christians were, first century Christians were confronted with. And then as a result of that, maybe we can better understand how we apply this to, to ourselves also. Before we proceed uh, in a little bit further into this context, the background or whatever, let's look at the seven blessings in the book of Revelation, because I think this also frames the conversation. John has seven blessings, as we said, in the book of Revelation, and reminding ourselves of these blessings kind of helps us go, okay, this is what they were having to deal with and what they were having to overcome. So how about if you want to start Revelation chapter one, verse uh, three. That one's going to be blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. The second one is chapter 14, verse 13. And it says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit that they may rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. Okay. So 1615 would be the next one. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be ex uh, seen exposed. Chapter 19, verse nine says, he said to me, right, blessed are those who invited the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Uh, chapter 20, verse six, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Yeah, chapter 22, verse 7, the sixth one it says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And then the final one is chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So I just hope that gives us a little bit of context. So I'm going to give you a, what life was like maybe in Rome and some of these uh, larger cities uh, like Rome. Uh, there's a, a really good book, actually, by Wes Howard Brook and Anthony Gwither called uh, Unveiling Empire, Reading Revelation Then and Now. It might not be for the average reader or whatever, but for the student of the book of Revelation, it actually does a great job of it. And so let me kind of summarize uh, some of the things that they pointed out. The first thing they point out was the primary residential unit in the Roman city was like these multi-story apartments that were then divided into small little cubicles, I think is what the word that uh, uh, Brook and uh, Gwither used. Um, so there's this massive population density. Most of these cities, and it'll be interesting, I think, um, to talk with uh, David De Silva and to see what if Ephesus was the same way. I think it was. I've seen some of the, I, I've been to Ephesus, and if I recall, the wealthier homes had indoor plumbing, but where the, everybody else sat, there was no indoor plumbing. 
And I think that's pretty standard in most of the Roman Empire. Um, but the, the high population density, of course, sewage is a massive problem, then, especially if you don't have indoor, indoor plumbing at all. So aqueducts and baths were simply not adequate for taking away the human waste and the buildup of sewage meant a lot of disease. And this, of course, high level of disease obviously means a low life expectancy. Mm -hmm. But I've discussed before, I think also how Rome necessitated a large number of people to be in that city, to work in that city, to facilitate Rome's opulence. And that's why Rome actually offered free grain to anybody who wanted to live in the city of Rome. And so people are dying all the time. Well, new people are coming in all the time also. So you have a, a large level, a large influx of population, people from rural areas and others. And that they were needed to maintain the population levels because there's high rate of death. Brooke and Gwither then say, uh, quote, with chronic overcrowding, poor sanitation, disease, death, and a high proportion of strangers and endemic poverty, the ancient city was not a pretty place. Mm. All right, so now the next thing that happens was this is, you basically got to know people in your community because you're living such close quarters, such cramped quarters. There's no indoor plumbing, no private plumbing, no uh, cooking facilities. So much of what you're doing is in public spaces. And because of that, you're in contact with lots of people. And so you're just, it's a socialized people group, and basically. And addition to this, there's festivals going on on regular occasions, particular streets and localities of the cities would have these festivals. And um, every city had tradespeople who gathered for worship and moral uh, mutual support and social events. Got to remember, the trade guilds were social. They were mm -hmm. religious. And of course, the, the religion of the empire was part of it. And the various gods that over like greatest Artemis of the Ephesians and Demetrius and this riot. But they were also social groups. And that's where they got their social context from um, also. Living in such close proximity, basically, you know your neighbors and you know what's going on very well. Obviously, there's a fight in the home everybody in the neighborhood knows about, right? So mm. um, people such as Christians mm. then who refuse to participate in just a regular part of Roman life, especially things like the imperial cult or the local cult and things of that nature, would just be conspicuous by their absence. I mean, it's like, why is, why is Vinny not here? Why is Rob not around? What's going on there? It's impossible for Christians to keep the resistance to the empire secret. So basically what happens then is you kind of have this cultural code that's basically imposed on you, that basically almost imposes on you the need to participate in the social events and the social arrangements. The culture basically says, this is what you do. This is the way the things are, this is the way the things should be. And in fact, this is actually the divine will. Culture then, becomes in service of the empire. In other words, everything was fostered to support the empire. And the empire is what it was. We usually translate it as the kingdom, the word uh, basileia in Greek. We usually translate it as kingdom. Basileia is a translation from Latin of the imperium. And it's, in other words, it, it basically means the empire. And, and in the Roman world, there was only one empire, and it was Rome. And that legislated everything. So it was every national holiday, patriotic event, Every ritual, liturgy, everything was done just reminded you of the system, which was economic, political, social, um, cultural, religious, etc., that just imposed upon every aspect of life. And so I, if, if we can grapple with this, this is, the, this is the life that we're talking about. And all of a sudden, John comes in and Paul comes in, the Christians come in and say, hey, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And when they say Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, that means you cannot participate and be part of this imperial system that was built upon radical injustice.
upon the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, like most everyone in the society was overly oppressed by the empire, but you participate because it's the only way that you can survive. And you know, I, I, I was thinking on this a lot today, just mm. processing, reading the notes earlier and knowing that we're going to talk about this. And there is just no modern equivalent in the right. West to this. You know, as teachers, we teach with similes like, oh, this is like this, right? We do this, we compare all the time. And I, I'm struggling to come up with anything, especially like most of us will live in a suburban right. type uh, town where you're commuting to work. No one knows, like I, I just moved into a new uh, court. It, courts tend to be more communal than an mm -hmm. average street because yeah, you're, right, you're right. living in this cul-de-sac, right? right yeah. And so I've met my neighbors, but I still like, I know what a couple of them do, but I don't, I really don't know anything yeah, about yeah. anyone. We just can't, even with us, we pass and go um, all the time. And so I'm thinking like, you know, this idea of almost, I, I don't want to use the word separatist um, in terms of what John is maybe calling the people of God to, to, to be, because that, that brings up other cultural ideas. Uh, but like even in, in, in the Western context, especially in a Christian context, you look at someone like a, a Mennonite or an Amish type mm -hmm. group where they, they're, they're going to live on the separatist side of the equation of the right. spectrum. And it's like, that's kind of what they're being asked to do. But you, but, but even there, you look at like a Dutch Amish country in Pennsylvania or something like that, where they could go off and they could live in their own little corner of yeah. the world and do their own thing. And they might have to go into the city every once in a while to get supplies. And then, but then they could go and leave. This isn't that when you're living in Rome because you're rubbing shoulders with people. Right. So the Christian community in Jerusalem could do this because there was enough Christians. And, and, right? and so, in the first century, Christians are going to be looked at as they're just a Jewish sect. Yeah, that's right. And, and we'll discuss that also as we, mm -hmm. as we proceed, too, because that's another factor, the Jewish yeah. element of, of this also. But there was enough Christians in, in the book of Acts, in the early chapters of Acts, where they could kind of live communally and share all their mm -hmm. goods. Mm -hmm. But notice, like, Barnabas sold land, but he owned land in Cyprus. Mm -hmm. And he signed that land to help the Christians there. But when you get to Rome or Ephesus, and there might only have been 20, 50, 15 you know, we, Christians, you don't have enough group enough together hey let's band together and we'll just and we'll, yeah. we'll we'll hunker down you can't do that the, the living quarters doesn't allow that and the economics doesn't allow that unless you have some wealthy benefactor in the city that says hey you christians can live over here it's simply not even possible so yeah not even possible yeah so you know we're we're months maybe years away from revelation 13 <laughs> and and everyone wants to know you know what is the mark of the beast and we, yeah, we get into the beast stuff but like we'll jump ahead a little bit just to say like hey what john is is primarily doing in this book is he's depicting the beast uh in a sense as being this is rome and this is this is the empire and so run away from this beast get away from this as, as fast as you can don't associate with this beast right What's happening though, and, and again, that's why this is so important is because you can't understand the beast of chapter 13 and what's going on there unless we understand this, this particular context well. Hey everyone, we wanna thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we wanna remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes.
So remember, an apocalypse reveals the way things are. Um, it unveils things, things that were mysteries, that were hidden are now being revealed. And the reality is it may look like this is the case, but this is actually the case. So it may look like Rome and the pomp and the ceremony and all that good stuff is, is just the system and this is good and this is the way it is. This has been ordained by the gods. We'll discuss here in a little bit. That, that may be the way it looks like. And it looks innocent that when you go into the temple and you do these things and burn incense before the image of the emperor and God knows your heart that you don't actually believe in all that. It may look innocent, but the reality is there's a seven-headed dragon behind all this. Hmm. And that seven-headed dragon has stood before the woman who was about to give birth to Christ, meaning probably Israel, and opposed everything that Israel was about, and then tried to snatch up the child. And when Jesus was snatched up to heaven, the, the dragon went after you, went after us. This is this cosmic battle that's going on. And by the way, Rome and the commodities and the wealth and prosperity of Rome, it's nothing but a drunk prostitute who's drunk with the blood of all who've been slain on the earth. So when you portray it like that, it's like, oh, okay, stay away from this. But that's not what they're seeing. And again, mm -hmm. this is what we're trying to do here with you and me. And it's going to take us a while for us to do this here for our yeah. listeners. We're also trying to say, oh, guess what? There's a seven-headed dragon after you also mm -hmm. in San Francisco, in Phoenix, in Washington, D.C., and wherever, you know, India, wherever you might be listening to this. And it may not look like that. And it may not. And the beast is a, is a hybrid beast that's vicious and blasphemes against God. And it may not look like that, but that's actually the case. And that's what's intriguing about this is we're trying to draw this portrait for the Christians in Rome in the first century. And yet we have a more difficult task of drawing this picture for people today because like, mm -hmm. oh, no, no, it's not, this is not an issue for us. Like, actually, it, it really is. It, it really is. So it's a, it, it's a huge issue and something that we need to figure out how to get our hands around. Well, and it's interesting, too, because you said revelation is an apocalypse, which by nature means to reveal something, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's using imagery. Yeah. So things that are enticing, they're just that. They're enticing. Yeah. Uh, I don't look at, you know, my dog, everyone's dog vomits at some point. You don't look at that. No one's enticed by that. That's disgusting, right? Um, but, but man, you look at the cheeseburger on the McDonald's commercial and you're like, that is enticing. You know, yeah, it's just not enticing to me that you're going to have to come up with a better one because I'm not okay. enticed by McDonald's cheeseburger. On the Pizza Hut commercial. No, not Pizza Hut either. <laughs> well, maybe what, the olden days. Okay. The uh, 80s maybe, Pizza maybe Hut. The olden days. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> how about Outback Steakhouse? Yeah, I don't know about that. I'm not. Yeah, a, I'd rather cook my own steak. Or I can, you know, uh, Olive Garden or a good Italian restaurant. <laughs> Wait, now you just said Olive Garden or a good Italian. As a good Italian, you just equated Olive Garden with yeah, good Italian. Because that's the only commercials I, th I see. I don't think there's a good. There's not like Italian <laughs> okay, commercials so, for Italian restaurants. So, so let's go, go with Olive Garden. Yeah. So <laughs> let's go with Olive had a Garden. Commercial, you and I yeah. would be down there right away. Yeah. Be, yeah. Exactly. We'd be, we'd be broadcasting all of our episodes from there. Oh, it'd, it'd be straight. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Let's go. <laughs> but, <laughs> but 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 you see the Olive Garden commercial and you see the fettuccine Alfredo or whatever, and you're like, there's nothing. That's just that's flour and fat. There's nothing good about that. But that is enticing, that's right? Very enticing. Uh, and it's one of those things where like, yeah, and that, there's a dragon behind that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's the point that John's trying to make is these things that entice us. It, it's not actually what they appear. They, they look good and awesome and tasty and sexy, but there's actually something behind that that's not good. And and I right. think that's the point that John's trying to play here. It's like that thing that you think is is amazing and, and is the savior of the world, you know, terms that would be used of the emperor or something like that or the Caesar yeah, or whoever. Yeah. 
No, this is actually a dragon behind this thing. Yeah, yeah. All right. We have a long ways to go with this conversation, and we'll kind of we'll yeah. continue to get there. So talking about this idea of the imperial cult, it's a good example of how, um, you know, the language of, uh, you know, the language of power in the ancient world, uh, they didn't distinguish between religion and politics. There's no separation of church and, and state. These things are all infused. So how, how does the imperial cult and this kind of idea impact just everyday society? Yeah. So the temples were central to all these ancient cities. And they played a role in the economy, especially the cities of Asia. So remember the seven churches of Asia are on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And these are seven churches within that, that region. These churches especially were steeped in the imperial cult and things, and the cult of Asclepius and the god of Apollo and greatest Artemis of the Ephesians and Diana and all these different things. The temples themselves operated as banks and also as marketplaces. I mean, this is just where you went for a lot of things. Financial transactions would be impossible without the banking facilities that were in some of the larger temples. Hmm. So in Rome, they had the Temple of Saturn, which was the headquarters of the state treasury. The Temple of Artemis in Ephesus was the financial headquarters in the province of Asia. Uh, the temples also lent money. It took out mortgages. Almost everything happening economically and socially and politically and religiously are happening through the temples. So now this puts what we read from Acts 19, this riot that happened in Ephesus, it puts it in a better context. It explains, you know, what the Christians in these seven churches specifically were facing, um, especially like as we bring in like Jezebel, like we talked about last yeah. week in Thyatira. Um, so how does like understanding of who she really was, Jezebel, how, and, and we could maybe, if you want to just give a quick reminder from last yeah. week of, of who Jezebel yeah. is, um, how does this understand or help us understand why John gave her this title, this church in Thyatira. She's a foreign queen. The king of the north, of course, was a man named Ahab. And so in 1 Kings chapter 21, this is where Jezebel kind of gets her name. In 1 Kings, and this actually really helps the context as well, because you're not only talking about Rome as a, as a great prostitute, Rome as a beast, the dragon, Satan as a seven-handed dragon. John's portraying these graphic images but what makes the Imperium, the Imperial, or the Empire, the Empire, is that it got its prosperity, its peace, its Pax Romana, at the expense of almost everybody else, hmm. which in the prophets would be at the expense of the poor and the marginalized or the widows and the orphans and the, the immigrants, right? This is the, what the prophets are speaking about. It's what Jesus is speaking about as well, right? Woe to the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they devour widows' houses. Oh, this is the same message. So, what happens in 1 Kings chapter 21 is there's a man named Naboth, and he had a vineyard. And kind of, I'll kind of skim through the story if you want to follow along in your Bibles, but it's 1 Kings chapter 21. And so, um, but it was right next to King Ahab's palace in Samaria. And notice, by the way, he had a vineyard. And Ahab spoke to Naboth and said, you know, hey, give me your vineyard that I may make for it a vegetable garden. And of course, you're, you're, this Genesis 1, 2, and 3 imagery is all over all these stories all the time, mm -hmm. by the way, right? Um, because it's close to my house. And by the way, and I'll give you a better vineyard and anywhere you want. And in fact, if you don't want a better, I'll just give you money for it. Now, what you have to understand, by the way, in the ancient world, you can't sell ancestral land. You cannot sell it. It cannot be bought and sold in perpetuity. If you have to sell it for economic reasons, it has to be given back to you during the year of Jubilee. Mm -hmm. And this is your ancestral land. I was talking with some people just the other day. I was doing a, a discussion, side note here for a second kind of giving a little bit of context, I said, hey, look, you guys probably should know about the work I do in Israel, Palestine, and the Middle East, and peace, and 
advocating for for a just peace and just and a just solution there. And we're talking a little bit about the context of what the Palestinian life was like. And someone said, "Why don't they just leave? Hmm. You know, if it's that bad for the Palestinians, why don't they just leave?" And I responded, "I said, you know, that's a very American statement because it's easy for us to get up. I mean, my house, I've lived in it for a couple of years now. I was born in Boston. I moved to California when I was." three and a half years old. So I don't have ties to the land at all. It was easy for me to go back to Philadelphia for five years, work on my PhD. Then we moved back to California. Now I moved to Arizona. That's just what we do. But when that olive tree was planted by your great, great grand grandfather, mm -hmm. you don't leave it. That olive tree is part of your family, that vineyard, mm -hmm. that the land is part of your family. It, so it's easy. And of course, there are many Palestinians that have left because of desperation, but it shows you how desperate and it was that they might leave. So Naboth is like, hey, look, I can't leave. This is my ancestral land. And so Naboth said, the Lord forbid me. And look what he says in verse three, that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab comes into his house and he's vexed, it says. And verse five, his wife Jezebel, who's a foreign queen. So she worships foreign gods. And she says, how is it that you're so sullen that you're not eating any food? And he said, well, because I spoke to Naboth and he won't give me your, his land. And Jezebel says, verse seven, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So here's what you did. She wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with a seal and sent letters to everybody saying, hey, come to this dinner. So she proclaims a fast and she sit, seats Naboth at the head of the people. And she sat two, verse 10, two worthless men before him and let them testify against Naboth saying, you cursed God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. And so that's what they did. And guess what happened? Ahab gets Naboth's land. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for your money for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And he went down and he took possession of the land. And this is the story of empire. So Jezebel is this foreign queen who entices the Israelite people to worship other gods and to do acts of injustice that create empire and prosperity for them at the expense of lack of devotion to Yahweh and the principles of Yahweh, which of course means you don't steal someone's land. You in fact, give it back to them. Hmm. So you obviously have these backgrounds of uh, issues that are happening culturally. One of the things or one of the themes rather that we see throughout the seven messages is this threat that is coming from false teachers and it's coming from within, right? So you have these out external issues that Rome is an issue, but you also have internal things. And I, we mentioned, I think last week, how m most every letter in the new Testament is dealing mm -hmm. with threats from within. Uh, yeah. Do we know what, uh, you know, what the false teachers were saying or teaching? So it's actually a little bit difficult. Obviously, when you're reading Paul's letters to Rome or Paul's letters to the Philippians or Paul's letter to Timothy or First Peter, whatever, it's a conversation where you know what I'm saying, so I don't have to clarify myself. And you have a little bit of that in, in the book of Revelation as well. John's writing to churches and they know the context of what's going on, so John doesn't expound upon it. So I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans and like you do also. We're like, well, great. We're sitting there going, who are the Nicolaitans? Mm -hmm. please, please explain yourself. But he doesn't explain himself because they knew who they were. So now we're like, well, who are the Nicolaitans and what were they saying? So in chapter two, it says of Revelation two, it says, 
that these false teachers were encouraging them to eat things sacrificed to idols and to have sexual immorality. Like, okay, so that gives us some indication. Eating things sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality was largely tied to the religious ideology of the imperial cult and the various uh, gods and goddesses around the Roman, Roman Empire. So it sounds like the false teachers were trying to make room for Christians to basically, it's okay to interact with their non-Christian neighbors, even when pagan rites were concerned. Bottom line would become, you know, where would people eat food sacrificed to idols? And it would be in a number of different places, but one of them would mm -hmm. be at the pagan temples. A question on that, because like last night, I'm, I'm teaching a class on politics that we do, and we deal with uh, Christian liberty, Christian freedom. So we'll, we'll spend time looking at Romans 14, the first uh, 12 verses of that, where it's talking about, um, you know, you have this stronger, weaker brother thing Isn't happening. Paul the one who said, give me liberty or give me death. That's exactly. He, he did oh, say that. Uh, he also Paul. started Hamilton uh, on in Broadway. <laughs> I, just, I just interrupted you there. <laughs> no. <laughs> But um, yeah, we should keep that in because that's funny. But okay. uh, <laughs> you were laughing, but, so I, I was laughing. It was good. <laughs> uh, you have this uh, idea. You know, Paul oftentimes is dealing with the issue of what can you eat. You know, this comes up in uh, you know First Corinthians. What is it? Eight. Okay. Uh, obviously, the, the issue of food is going to come up in Acts ten and fifteen. So, like food and Gentile inclusion, these these things are definitely going to go hand in hand as early issues within the church. Right. I'm just curious, how do you see? John approaching this topic differently in Revelation than we might see in Acts or in Paul's letters. Yeah. And I think that's a question, actually. Is it different than Acts or Paul? I don't think it is, but that's okay. an interesting discussion. The context may be a little bit different, but I don't, I don't actually think it's actually different. But John, if anything, is much clearer. Mm -hmm. um, the false prophets and prophetesses like Jezebel and others were probably saying, yeah, you can, no problem at all. You can eat the food. You can go to the festivals. You can do all these things. Maybe along the lines of what Paul was dealing with in first Corinthians chapter eight, where, you know, mm -hmm. these gods are no gods at all. So it's all fine. All fine and dandy. And John draws a really hard line. No, you cannot do this. Mm -hmm. uh, you cannot take the mark of the beast and worship his image. You can't do any of these things at all. So that was, that's why it's so significant to figure out what John is drawing this hard line against and how that applies to us today. We hope you're enjoying the podcast and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. Yeah. So, I mean, how would you see this? Would you see that uh, are, are people able to you know, are not people, but Christians, could they participate in some of the activities and not others? Had to do with, with pagan rituals and whatnot. I think John's like, answer is no. Yeah, because yeah, that's yeah. interesting, because I, I haven't really put a lot of work into yeah. this, and I'm thinking, like, it seems, and I'd have to go back and read Paul on yeah. this, it, it, if I'm remembering correctly, in, like, a First Corinthians 8, it's the idea of, like, don't do this in public, but it's okay. The meat's meat. So there's like, there's right. nothing special happening. Like, and if it's going to offend your brother, then don't do it. Okay. But that's eating it in private homes. Yes. Yeah. Well, in private homes. Yes. In a private home. And if someone has a conscience and they're offended because the meat was, I think that's yeah. the primary difference there. Mm -hmm. And I think John's answer is participating in the system uh -huh. um, is explicitly wrong because the system, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome and the imperial system is on the backs of millions of slaves and the woman as revelation 18 says the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints with the blood or 17 with the blood of the witnesses of jesus mm -hmm. um, and in fact it says in chapter 18 it says that she was drunk and her was found the blood of all who've been slain on the earth 
And so it's the system. And of course, we look at it and go, okay, but our imperial system is, is better. We're not like that. And I think we need to stop and go, well, is maybe it? <laughs> it is more than we it, think. It, it, it's, I, I would say it's just yeah. not as explicit. It's not as explicit. And, and that makes it worse. Mm-hmm. And so I think the question of how does this apply for us today is more complex than we're going to get into now. We've got to dwell with well, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, mm-hmm. Revelation 18, figure out what these passages mean. And then begin to stop and say, and maybe we need to have a, a number of episodes where we just talk about, okay, what does this look like? What does this mean for us now? And ultimately, mm-hmm. in that start of the context is, if we're doing these things and profiting from them, in which other people are suffering as a result of that, we need to figure out a way through that. The answer to that, by the way, is almost impossible to function in the Western world without that happening. There's a website, it's a longer conversation, but just it's called slaveryfootprint.com or .org. Mm-hmm. What you do is you go on the website, slaveryfootprint.org I'll put it in the show notes. And it asks you a series of questions. Do you own a television? Do you own a cell phone? Do you own this? Do you own that? What do you have? What do you do? And when you're done answering all the questions, it says, how many slaves mm-hmm. have worked to give you the things that you have? Hmm. And you realize, oh, wait a second. We cannot have... This is what we talked about, Richard Foster's book, this, uh, what's it called? The Freedom of Simplicity. Richard Foster's book, The Freedom of Simplicity. And what the reality is, you can't, Richard Foster talks about, you cannot have the level of prosperity that we have without somebody else going without, because there simply aren't enough goods in the world Hmm. for everybody to have what we have. The only way we can have the amount that we have is somebody else has gone without. And the reality is you can only have your cell phone for the price that you have it because slaves are getting the copper and because other people are putting these parts together. That's a reality. Now, I'm not saying you have to get rid of your cell phone or cell phones are evil. I'm simply saying we have to stop and recognize the prosperity that we experience is at the cost of others. And we need to figure out how to advocate for those others and how to advocate and use the power that we have because we live in one of the most powerful nations of the world, if not the most powerful nations of the world. And it's a democracy. Mm-hmm. And so we have a vote and we have a voice and to use that voice to advocate for the people that are being oppressed. And the first thing is we have to become aware that, that it's happening. And that's Okay. So, you know, even that, you, you, the idea that like, Hey, we have a voice in things in our society. Uh, if we understand ancient Roman culture appropriately, there was a, there was a pluralism that existed. They were allowed to practice their own religions, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, but the gods of Rome were, were to be honored first. And okay. that's where the Christians just couldn't trespass. You have to do your um, allegiance to Rome. And remember, Rome, the Roman Empire is not homogenous. So there are pockets of the empire where you're fine and dandy. You can be a Christian. You can be exempt from these. And people aren't really going to pay much attention because nobody, nobody else is really paying attention. In Asia, where the seven churches were, this was a serious issue. In Rome, mm-hmm. this is a serious issue. But the reality then is in the Roman world, if you follow the gods and worship the gods, the gods are the ones who put the emperor in his in place. So whether the emperor is being deified by now or not, which is probably happening, because certainly it's happening by the late first century, uh, at the time that John was probably writing the book of Revelation. The reality was the empire taught that the fate of the city and of the empire was at the mercy of the gods. And the gods had put Rome in power to establish the peace of the empire and the prosperity of the empire, which, by the way, you might not be partaking of, but that's beside the point. 
the gods had put all that in place. And so this became an issue, you know, later on in church history, the next couple of centuries where Christians were being persecuted because a tragedy would happen in the empire and the emperor would go, well, the gods must be angry. Why are the gods angry? Oh, the Christians aren't worshiping them mm. and, and the Jews and they're not worshiping them. And so then they were, they were, they were sought after for persecution. So this is, this was your, your civic responsibility, your civic duty was to, as a father, you know, you and I, Vinny, we would be the head of our households. Mm-hmm. And our job as fathers was to maintain order within our household. And if everyone maintained order in our households, then you have stability in society. Now, the emperor was the head of the Roman household. And it was the whole empire was one household. And the emperor was the head over that household. So we're members of the emperor's household. And so our responsibility, like our kids and our wives' responsibility, sorry about it, but that's just the way it was, the patriarchal culture, was to maintain the order within our family unit and listen to the head of the household. Well, our responsibility as members of the Roman household was to do our service and and allegiance to the the Roman emperor because it was his responsibility by the gods to maintain the specific order of the empire. So this is ideologically driven and, of course, the economics drive everything, just like we saw with Demetrius. It was economics that caused him to say what he says, but then what did he, what did he do? He immediately wrapped it in an ideological religious garb. Oh, and Artemis is going to be defamed. What are we going to do about this? And everybody's in an uproar. And it's interesting as you're describing like the duty that the citizen ought to, to experience in terms of participating, because if something goes wrong, it's, it's on me for not uh, giving due uh uh, worship to the deity. Once again, we have nothing that exists like that in our right. in our context at all. Like, there's nothing close to that. The, the only closest thing that we have, because mm. we're a culture in which we can vote, is, and this is becoming less and less, I think, in, our, in over the last number of years, uh, in terms of the duty of it. But like, especially growing up, like I'm 44. You know, you grew up in a, in a you know, in the late 20th century, the duty that everyone has to vote. Like it's your obligation to vote is, is, is and so from a democracy standpoint yeah like that's put on us but nobody knows if you don't vote or not exactly because I, I mean if you if you get a sticker that says i voted today that's cool but not everybody wears those well no, and, and honestly a lot of that's just virtue signaling anyway yeah, and, and you work from home anyways and you don't even see your neighbors for three days anyways right exactly or you drive in your in your home and you open the garage door drive in they don't yep. know whether you have the sticker on or not yeah so and I there's multiple polling places everywhere. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. I actually think it's way worse than that, though, Vinny. I, sure. I think there's a lot of things that happen in our society that are ideologically driven. That okay. if you don't do, I'm not going to mention them now. That if you don't do, you are in trouble. And the churches, and you can see, that, you know, obviously, I'm touching on nationalism a little bit, right? They mm-hmm. get the, the churches are often the hotbed of these places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they're often the hotbed of these places because if you don't participate in this. Or you don't, or you did that. So how about I'll I'll I'll, I'll volunteer for this one then, and we okay. don't have to go on a tangent, but I'll, I'll volunteer to see if maybe you would uh, give it a yay or nay. Uh, my church, for a long time, displayed American flags on stage, and yes. and we've removed those over the last five six years. You have, and yes. you got away with it. it. There was a lot of pushback. Wow. Um, we used to do things like have veterans stand on mm-hmm. Veterans Day. Uh, don't do that anymore. Okay. Um, yeah. And so those are things where you the probably absence... had people leave your church because of that. Oh, absolutely. But you were You're... large enough that you were able to sustain it. And you probably had a good leader who gave the rationale behind it mm-hmm. that 
pacify those who are maybe on edge. Yeah. And then a few others probably got up and left. Yeah. 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 Well, and then you also take, you also take advantage of things like a pandemic where everything changes and then you come back and things are just different. (laughs) You make a little bit of change. Yeah. 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 Uh, That, that, those are, those are definitely examples that are, that that are warranted. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's other ones that are even more provocative. Yeah. Sure. 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 Yeah. Good. So, man, if I didn't participate then in the imperial religion of Rome, this is, being disloyal to Rome, this is treasonous then in a sense, would you say that? It it can be treason. And again, it depends on what part of the empire you're in and who notices and who doesn't notice. And maybe your neighbor wants to turn you in so they can get political favors or they can get some some advantage or whatever. Um, But this is especially an issue in the seven churches because these churches were vying to build temples to the gods or to the emperor. And they're trying to get or they're trying to get permission from Rome to build the, the next imperial temple. The first one that ever was built was built by in Pergamum, one of the seven churches, the year that Augustus became the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Mm. So it's very much an issue in those in those churches, but it depends on obviously where you are in the empire and who notices and who wants to turn you in, and who doesn't want to turn you in. Okay, so to to actively not participate in this, this is going to cause major issues socially, uh, politically. You know, check every box. So let's let's assume financially. But financially, absolutely, yeah. Remember last week you said you know what causes people to do these things, and I said mm-hmm. I said you know flippantly I said they want to eat. Yeah. You know, and the fact that the average person wants to eat. I mean, think of it this way also, and maybe this a side a segue a little bit. The rest of Jesus happens at night and Jesus challenges them and says, you know, I was with you guys every day in the temple and you didn't arrest me then. What he's doing is he's calling out the fact that you guys were afraid to arrest, arrest me during the, in the temple because you knew the people were on my side. And, and it even says they were afraid of the people. So they arrest Jesus at night. But the next day, the crowd shout crucify, crucify. Mm-hmm. If the crowd was so much on Jesus's side that they were afraid to arrest Jesus during the day, how they get the crowds to shout crucify, crucify the next day. Hmm. Because when the leaders say crucify, crucify, you say crucify, crucify. Interesting. And Jesus is beaten and blooded and it's a done deal. When Jesus was in the temple teaching every day, maybe I can object and get this innocent man freed. And I think he's innocent. Maybe I'll, but that dude is on his way to a cross. It's not going to do any good to abstain. So crucify, crucify is the chant. I'll go along with everybody else. Which in our Western individualist mindset, we don't understand that because it's like, no, I have the right to protest and I have freedom of speech in these things. But, That's just not how it works in the ancient world or in a communal but society. You, but you don't. You, mm-hmm. I'm not going to, I want to, I, I want to hold off right now because I don't want to like, I want people to think about this and process okay, this okay. themselves okay. instead of telling them where, Hey, well, I'm thinking it applies here. I think it applies there. Yeah, yeah. And it might be too much for them right now also. So I think they just think, I think. There's, we say we can protest and we do protest, but there's certain protests that even, especially in the church, you cannot do, Mm. or your church will not like you doing that. But there's also certain civil protests that you're not going to do. So I mentioned earlier in the show how Christians are it's a jewish sect they there's not a separation like we might see nowadays but towards the end of the first century that's when you kind of start seeing this division between the two and a separation you know rome starts seeing it a little differently uh from what i understand and then the, there's definitely conflict between 
Jews proper, if you will, and uh, you know the followers of Jesus, um, if John is calling you know Christians to act in a certain way, and he's doing it with a Jewish presupposition, monotheism, and 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 all these things, um, were there other issues that were were happening uh, from the Jewish communities? Uh, especially as in terms of how are they supposed to stay separate from from worshiping, uh, you know, the Greek or not the Greek, but the Roman deities, and like how did they stay out of the hot seat? Let's answer that question first, actually, because that's a separate question. We call it the parting of the ways between Christianity and Judaism, and it's disputed as to when that happens. Mm-hmm. I think that during the time of the Book of Revelation, that has not yet happened. Mm-hmm. Christians mm-hmm. were viewed viewed themselves as Jews. It was an interfamily dispute. It was becoming a growing distinction between them, but it, it hadn't quite happened yet. Although it's beginning to materialize, especially in Smyrna and Philadelphia, as we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks. But the Jewish world, first off, had the same problems that the Christians faced, right? Because they also believe that you're only supposed to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And, the, and Rome says, as long as you worship the gods of Rome first, you can worship whatever gods you want. Mm-hmm. And the Jews were like, sorry, we're not going to do that. So what the Jews did was they went to Rome and said, hey, look, we're not going to do this. Mm. Whether you like it or not, we're not going to do this. Now, remember, the Jews in Jerusalem or in Judea and whatever, they're a large enough group that they can revolt. Now, Rome can come in and squash them, and you know, but Rome doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So what the Jews said is, here's what we'll do. We are not going to worship the gods, but we, will ha- we have our temple in Jerusalem, and we will offer sacrifices for the Roman emperor. In other words, we'll pray to our God for the emperor in Rome. And then Rome said, okay, fine. And that made the Jews throughout the empire exempt from worshiping the Roman emperor because what the Jews throughout the empire did is they sent their tax money, some of their tax money, to the temple in Jerusalem, the temple tax. All Jews had to pay it. And they paid that temple tax. And then that money went to a daily sacrifice for the Roman emperor. No problem at all. Well, -hmm. then you get to 70 AD and the temple is destroyed. And now they can't offer sacrifices for the emperor any longer and prayers for the emperor. So what does that mean? Well, the first thing is this. Even then, the Jews were still not respected. So let's say you got Jews in Ephesus or whatever, and they're not participating in the emperor worship. They're not doing all these things because they're sending their temple tax to Jerusalem. Well, people don't like that. You're different. You're not like us. You're a different group. And they got ethnic assaults and personal attacks. It was still something you know, the racist motivations against them were still uh, a real a reality for them. However, once the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem now, then Rome says, here's the deal. You're going to send that tax, but that tax is going to go to the new temple, which was a temple built for to the god Jupiter in Jerusalem. So the temple tax, which they formerly paid, for the daily sacrifices for the maintenance of the Jerusalem temple was now being collected by the temple in Jerusalem, Jupiter, Capitolinus. The price of toleration now was, in other words, you can abstain from the Roman religion, but your money is going to a pagan cult. Mm-hmm. Whereas it used to go to the temple in Jerusalem, now it's going to a pagan cult. And so that's the epitome of what Jesus was saying, you know, give what's to Caesar's to Caesar and give what to God is God's. You're now taking money that belongs to God and giving it to Caesar. I mean, mm-hmm. emphatically there. So um, the Jews were having more and more problems. So now what happened then is when the Christians began to cause problems. So you're proselytizing my grandmother or my aunt or my cousin or my nephew or my uncle or my brother or my husband or whatever. And, 
it seems that maybe people within some of the synagogues, in particular Smyrna and Philadelphia, they were going around to the Romans and saying, hey, you know, those guys aren't Jews. And that becomes a kind of a, a damning accusation because as long as they were Jews, they were exempt from the, the emperor worship and the emperor cult. And all the things that we've been talking about were relevant. But now, now in some cities that didn't happen, but in some cities, they were falling under this Jewish umbrella and it appears that Smyrna and Philadelphia were saying, no, 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 they're not Jews. Hmm. I, I'm just trying to think, and once again, no, it's difficult modern equivalent. Yeah, but yeah. could you imagine, and it probably happens at some level, but uh, your church, you know, the tithe dollars you go in and then the, the church is paying out to uh, help fund a strip club or something like that. <laughs> You know, like we would be yeah. up in arms over that, but we probably do that on there's, some there's level. There's documentaries with on those, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because your analogy might sound like, oh, let me just come up with this. Actually, it's real, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah exactly. Um, or imagine that it's it's not as big, again, like if you're a Jehovah's Witness and your money's mm -hmm. going for the, for the United States military, right? Most Christians yeah. don't aren't anti-militaristic. So mm -hmm. they don't have a problem if their money's going to the United States government yeah, if your money's going to something that is illicit, inappropriate, improper, you know, that's the problem with some of these megachurches too, and some of the exposés that, that have been going mm -hmm. out and becoming popular nowadays. Whereas they're living like wealthy, fabulous lives yeah. and Armani suits and all these 2007, you know, what's that that, that uh, book that was written um, about pastors and shoes? What's it called? Oh, oh uh, uh, Preachers and Sneakers. Preachers and sneakers that it, yeah, like yeah. yeah. And the whole book was like, do these preachers really need to have this these expensive yeah. sneakers? And it, he meant it as just like, hey, I, I'm just trying to call your attention to it. He didn't mm -hmm. mean any ill will from it, but obviously some of the powerful preachers took took ill will uh, with him on, yeah. um, for it. But so, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Hey, what do we do with this? Obviously, we kind of been grappling with that a whole lot this evening in this particular conversation. And let me kind of just throw this out there. We, we're probably running out of time and maybe we'll maybe we can even pick it up here next time. But in Matthew 6, 19 through 35. I just don't think we grapple with Matthew 6 uh, well. I think we read it and go, okay, this is great. No problem at all. But in Matthew 6, Jesus says, you know, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in, in heaven, in God's kingdom, by the way, right? Then he goes on to say, verse 25, by the way, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. Or for your body is what you'll put on. And it's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. But the reality is, Vinny, I don't think you and I read this worried about our food mm -mm. and worried about clothes. And I don't think most people in American churches are either. So when Jesus goes on and say, hey, look at the birds of the air. I, this is just good poetry is all it is. Yeah. Yep. It's not real for us. But for the Christians in this context, it is. Because if you don't, participate in the economic, political, ideological system of the empire, you better worry about food. Yeah. And you might have to worry about your life and clothing might be optional because which one are you going to get food or clothing? And, you know, Jesus says, why are you worried about clothing? Look at the hallelujahs of the field grow. And then he goes on, he ends this by saying, you know, what do you, why do you worry about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear for clothing? For the Gentiles seek these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Instead, seek first his kingdom and his right righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. You say have enough, enough trouble of its own. I think we need to wrestle with this text a whole lot more. 
And I think the book of Revelation is going to make us wrestle with this text a whole lot more once we begin to realize what the message of Revelation is and how it applies to us. I think we're going to. It's so funny too, just in the Western evangelical world, which I'm very much a part of. Yes. um, In a conservative evangelical, you know, culture, even looking at that phrase and. but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I mean, I remember singing like in the eighties in church song, yes, like you, yes, there's a song, yes. there's like that folky seek song. Yeah, exactly. Go for it. Exactly. No, you don't want me going for it. You I, can go for it, but I not, can't. That's a, no, that's a true statement. I'll play drums to it. But, uh, okay. <laughs> but even there in our context, we hear of righteousness and yes. all we think of is like moral holiness. Exactly. It, it, we don't exactly. think of righteousness as being materialism or, or that the, sort of thing. The biblical equivalent of the, of the Old Testament word for justice. Yeah. yeah. So justice and righteousness are twin words in the Old mm-hmm. Testament. Yep. As soon as I finish my commentary, that's my next book. And I'm, you know, <laughs> we're gonna, it, it's almost done. And I'm gonna, I got a buddy that we're going to do it together with. So, uh, and he'll do a lot of the Old Testament stuff on that also. But Mishpat and, and all mm-hmm. that stuff yeah. there of justice and right, righteousness. And when Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness it literally means hunger and thirst for justice that's why we weep blessed are those who yep. mourn blessed are those who pursue peace mm-hmm. um, blessed are the gentle well hungering and thirsting for righteousness in the middle of all that isn't some personal piety it's establishing a just society where in, in the biblical world in the old testament world a just society is where everybody had at least what they needed to survive it doesn't mean that you can't have more it just means that everybody else, what are they, at least what they need. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that this is, this is the gospel message. Yeah. And it hurts. So, and so, you know, even looking at takeaway stuff, you know, we had talked earlier before we started, you know, I, I was reading through a book uh, tonight, just to prep and the, the scholar was uh, comparing revelation two and three against some other literature that existed prior to the Bible. And just the idea of like, uh, the the wealth and riches that we have mm-hmm. and how even in the ancient world that's you know it's the rich who are seen as the evil because uh, right. they're the ones right. who are getting their rich by oppression and the majority of the world is going to be oppressed they're going to be poor we talked about that with right. um uh, dr carter warren right. carter you know a while back and so it's like man what does that look like I, i've just been sitting on it all day what does that look like to be so affluent and i'm middle class <laughs> and yet i am so affluent right exactly um you know, and that's the thing is, it, you know, society has told us that, you know, my wife is a high school teacher. I work at a church. We're not rich by any means, yet we so are. We're so wealthy. Yeah, right, right. Um, but I bought into, you know, the standard of well, what's my zip code and what kind of car do I drive and all that. Yeah, and right. I don't know, just 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 stop using other people as a comparison. And I don't know what that looks like. Right. Um, but but man, that's a struggle. Yep. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. Yeah, there's I'll put two books, uh, the links to them in the uh, three of them, actually. Uh, in the show notes also, and, and these are things that we'll keep coming back to, but uh, Michael Gorman wrote a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. Mm-hmm. Small little book, not that hard, but really is going to challenge you to think about these things. Uh, David De Silva wrote a book called Unholy Allegiances. Mm-hmm. And then Scott McKnight, uh, and he co-wrote it with uh, Cody Matchett, wrote a book called Revelation for the Rest of Us. And the mm-hmm. subtitle is A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple wow. And I read that and I was like, wow, they were very provocative. I don't know that I disagree. I'm just surprised that he said a lot of things that he said. Mm. And I think we're hearing these voices starting to speak up in the church saying, you know, we're called to read Revelation responsibly. 
We're called to stop, get away from unholy allegiances, and we're called to be dissident disciples. And it's not as easy as you think. And it's, it's, it's a challenge. That's why I said at the beginning of this episode, we don't like prophetic voices mm-hmm. and revelations. And the whole Bible is a prophetic voice. And we've, we've softened it, but I think we need to get back to, you know, um, I, I think uh, uh, John Stott wrote a book called Radical Disciple. Right. Probably he wrote a million books yeah. with disciple in there. So yeah. probably, yeah. And his answer is a disciple is what we're called to be. Mm-hmm. And a disciple is the person who's radical. Yeah. 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 So, all right. Yeah. Hey, and actually. I would also say until your book comes out on, uh, on righteousness and justice, I would highly recommend Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, How God's mm-hmm. Grace Makes Us Just. Uh, and especially for someone who is in that evangelical conservative world yeah, and yeah. him calling the church. Um, and, and he goes through the same thing, the ideas of what's mishpat and, and the Old Testament uh, foundations. Yeah. It's a really good yes. intro to biblical theology. Yeah. yeah. So all right. excellent. Good. All right. Well, hey, uh, we meet again. <laughs> nice was that gene autry or who sings that? i don't know who that was yeah um cool yes, so next sera, week sera, whatever will be, will be. this uh, is like karaoke like two night. different songs aren't they i don't even know if, the, if that's the same i song don't now. think those are the same songs I, at I, all I, yeah, yeah whatever but that's that, that's what's on my mind is it's always nice. been a long day yes we're gonna be hanging out in revelation two and three still for a few more weeks right yeah. we haven't passed this yeah. up well, let's, we're gonna try to get it in the text next week and start looking at what the seven messages are like and what okay. the words are to each, each of the churches and Probably spend a few weeks in that, and then we'll get into uh, chapter four and the heavenly vision and uh, the good stuff. It's yeah, the, the rapture parts. Yeah, yeah. You gotta grasp the chapters, uh, the seven messages, in order to understand the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the good stuff. All right, bud. I will catch you next week, right. and we'll see everyone else later. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.